Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. Today, we're speaking with Stephen Finn, co-founder and general partner of City Capital, which is an early stage food and beverage fund. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. We're really looking forward to it. So tell us about City Capital and the strategy of the fund. And actually, before we start on that, let's start with the name because I am curious about that. City Capital. So City, S-I-D-D-H-I. It's not my story to tell, unfortunately. It's my co-founder, Melissa. She, about eight years ago, I guess now, came up with the name when she started her own consulting business under it. So that was City Ops. And we, because of the name's reputation in the food and beverage industry, brought it forward into the capital business. Now, all joining together to be one big operations and capital team, one big happy family. Happy family, exactly. So tell us about the strategy of the fund. Our first fund is a $70 million fund that was created by contributing our family's assets in food and beverage. So we are a completely diversified investor as a family. And we took a look at the whole set of investments we'd made and took the food and beverage specific ones and chopped them off at our cost, contributed them into a fund structure, and then raised money on top of it. And a lot of the reason for that was we had people coming to us all the time asking to get into our food beverage deals. And you guys know better than anyone that it's very hard to get people into only the good ones. And it becomes a little bit of an adverse selection problem. So the ones that you can access for other people aren't necessarily the ones that you want other people to be deploying their money into. And we thought a lot about it and figured that the best way was to invite people into our whole food and beverage journey. And that is how we decided to start the firm and raise an additional $50 million on top of what we contributed. So what was the impetus for that? It sounds like you had the number of investments already in that space. Why did you think that it was an interesting space to create a strategy around? So I was spending a lot of time as a generalist and a couple of things happened, right? I was looking mostly at tech and food stuff and the tech stuff, I'm being a little bit mean, but the high flyers in tech are going for 50x next year's top line projections. And in food and beverage, the high flyers are going for three or 4x run rate. And when you're operating as a complete generalist and you see both of those things over and over and over again, it's hard not to gravitate towards that 3-4x run rate. They're not particularly similar businesses, but a lot of the growth fundamentals are similar enough. So that's part of it. But it really started when I met my partner, Melissa. So she, eight years ago, started a business called City Ops that is an outsourced operations consulting firm for early stage innovative food and beverage companies. And originally that was basically just her giving really good advice to founders and then founders falling on their faces, not being able to understand how to execute on that advice. So she learned that pretty quickly and built a team around herself that was a full execution team. So call it a 15 person team that is running the full back end of 25 or 30 early stage food and beverage TPGs at any given time. Wow. It's an awesome model. I met her about two and a half years ago on a diligence call where I was leading the Series A for a company called True Made Foods, which is a no sugar condiment company, ketchup, barbecue sauce, mustard, hot sauce, really awesome stuff. And I met her in diligence because what I was blown away by about True Made Foods was that it was basically a team of one 
doing a couple million in ketchup. And I didn't know how that was possible and realized that it was because of a lot of different outsourced providers of this or that, right? One food service sales provider, one grocery sales provider, one apps backend. And that's how I met Willis. I wasn't talking to all of these providers of services. The operations one was the one I found most interesting. My undergrads in ops, I've always loved ops, but when I met Melissa and figured out what she can do for these companies, it really is to me three things. The first is diligence. We do diligence on food and beverage companies that financial investors don't do. Just a totally different level of operational diligence in terms of things like, can these companies actually scale? Is there the infrastructure to make this somewhere else? That's not something financial investors would understand. Our team gets that. So diligence is huge. And then the second is the ability to actually dive in and fix problems when they exist. And that's not just crisis, right? That's also, we have one company in our portfolio that is in Portugal and ships everything from Portugal to the U.S. We're helping them set up a U.S.-based 3PL just on a project basis. So we do stuff like that. So a very high touch yeah, but that strategy sounds like. What that really gets us is the access. In a world where there's 2,500 plus food and beverage companies trying to raise money every year, you can see the real high flyers a mile away. And it's that ability to roll up your sleeves and get in and fix them that gets us the access into the high flyers in the first place. Right. So I haven't been on a call with a founder who, after half an hour on the phone with Melissa, wouldn't give us any allocation that we want in their round. Right. And that's powerful. So for us, we started basically by joining forces unofficially, and I would set her diligence requests, and she would send me companies she was doing ops for that were raising. And we fell in what we like to call deal love, and really decided to create something by contributing all the assets that we'd invested in. And that includes stuff that she had earned a bunch of sweat equity in these brands by working on them. And we just put everything we had in a bucket and raised on top of it. Right. And so what gets you guys really excited about a company? A lot. I mean, we've seen a lot change in the last year and a half as a result of COVID, right? I think our little slice of the world has had a really interesting time. It's been for companies that were already well positioned to direct to consumer sales at the beginning of COVID. They had most of them the best year they could have imagined. A year ago, acquisition costs online were very low in food and beverage. And that I think is a result of basically plenty of people spending way more time on social media, getting ads served to them. Entire industries not advertising like travel and hospitality. And most retail first companies not ever really focusing on or needing a D2C presence. There's no Oreo.com where you're buying a bunch of Oreos. You just go to the store and buy them. Right. Though that would be great. <laughs> I, I like that. They're good. What I'm saying is that there probably is one now. <laughs> yeah. But so over the last year, there's an Oreo.com, travel and hospitality is back. People are out in the world again, not looking at their phones. And that's totally reversed that model, right? Companies that were doing crazy explosive growth D2C last year are now a little flatter because of the impacts of all that. So what gets us excited, we like things that can really scale. And we look at that from a manufacturing perspective. The easier to make the stuff, the better. I personally am always excited by gross margins. I love the story that when we get to scale, this is going to work, but scale's a long way away. And you got to raise a lot of money to get from here to there and gross margins are freedom. Mm -hmm. That's huge for me. I think that in the last year, also in COVID, retail has been obviously really, really weird. So I wouldn't want to be 
a million dollar freezer brand right now because no one's going to find you. If you're in the freezer, you have no way of cost effectively doing D2C without pushing $100 order sizes because you're shipping ice and it's heavy. And when you have frozen tater tots in there that are a buck a box, the math doesn't work out. And then in retail, it was starting to go away. Maybe it's coming back now, but it was really this eyes on the list and get out mentality. People were going to the grocery store way less, spending less time there, but leaving with bigger carts of very specific things. And it's because they're just beelining around the place. That's not an environment to effectively start a frozen foods company in. It becomes really hard. Because you're not going to get spotted behind the glass by the person who's sprinting by you. And you can't effectively tell your story D to C in the way that other companies can. Historically, venture has had a mixed experience with food and beverage, right? Because like you said, it can be a low margin business. It just depends. But lately, we've seen a lot more interest, a lot more funds are starting to focus on food. And obviously, there's change in taste. There's new technologies. What do you think are the big trends or drivers that are creating new opportunities in that market? We view two sides of the world, and that's the supply side and the demand side. So the demand side is innovative CPG brands. It's keto, it's plant-based, it's changing taste of the consumer. Yeah, That comes out in new brands that get created that eventually get scooped up by strategics for the most part. Right. And that's basically the standard CPG exit is a couple hundred million dollar exit to a big strategic in your category. When you're doing that, it's hard to make money coming in late because the upside is sort of capped and it's hard to pick them early unless you really can dive in. So the early stage stuff that we're doing, Mm -hmm. we're attaching our operations people to from now on. And that's how we can get the comfort around doing it early and doing it with enough time and upside to have that strategic exit. That's the demand side. And I think that's where ventures had trouble. It's really a combination of not being able to pick them early and not having enough upside at growth stage. On the supply side, totally different story. And that's going to be the story of the next 10 or 20 years, right? That's cell-based meats and that's precision fermentation of all kinds of crazy ingredients. I read today about a precision fermentation of chocolate company. So rather than farming cocoa, And all of the awful labor practices and deforestation that comes with that, these guys are going to make it in a tank. And the potential there is amazing because that is just a drop in ingredient, right? If you could make chocolate in a tank that was better for some reason, you could sell all of it. You could sell it way faster than you could ever make it. That's a piece of it. The rest of it is all these ingredients that are not dropping yet, ingredients that people aren't using yet. We talked to a company called Turning Tree Labs that does cell-based milk and precision fermentation of milk components. And they're working on precision fermentation of human lactoferrin, which is a component in breast milk. And they're working on it not just for infant formula type applications, but for adult sports nutrition type applications. Yeah. Right. And there's all kinds of crazy uses for these natural ingredients that will be able to ferment at scale in the coming decade. Do you think that the supply side technologies and new approaches are important to give companies proprietary edge, kind of like a software company? So we had invested in Beyond Meat, and part of our thesis was that these guys are creating different versions of the burger, and there's a significant amount of technology, so that creates protection against 10 other people that are trying to copy you. What's that dynamic like in the market? It's a little dicey because I think there is a lot of IP and a lot of things that people claim to be protected that are not necessarily the only way to do something. My other example is Ripple, 
which Ripple is a pea protein based milk that has a lot of science behind it and the Riptine technology. But at the end of the day, the competition is really good to plant-based milks, right? Taking almonds and crushing them up and shaking them into water is really good. So do you actually need that level of technology to be competitive? In that case, I don't think you do. And in the case of the burger, maybe you do more. Got it. So it just depends, on, I guess, is the answer. <laughs> yeah, it depends on what the IP is protecting. IP that says the only way to make something that tastes good is to go through this IP is probably wrong. Got it. And I know Ripple is in your portfolio. Do you want to talk about one or two other portfolio companies? Yeah, I mean, I think that it makes sense to talk about some of the ones that are the story of our fund, right? I think of one like Emmy is a great one. So Emmy is a keto ramen company. How do you spell that? I am at my EATS.com for this yeah. listening. <laughs> I was uh, waiting for that. <laughs> it's like there's got to be a plug coming. Yes. So, Emmy is a ramen company. They'll eventually do more, but that's their first product. And we got a very small check into their pre seed. I think it was the last money that they would take in on a pretty low post cap safe. We begged them to take more. They refused. And then our operators took the helm and commercialized the product and got it really ready to go. They did a soft launch that was explosive and they sold quite a bit of ramen on just an email with a behind a password wall. And at that moment, we basically said, we're going to preempt your seed round. And we were in the position to do it because we'd spent a year in the trenches getting to know them, commercializing their product. We didn't have to do all that much diligence because we'd commercialized the product ourselves and we knew what it was and we'd spent a year with the people. And that was just a perfect fact pattern for us to jump in, lead the seed. They were getting attention from everywhere and we were able to short circuit that conversation because of our relationship with them, because of our ops. Awesome. Did you want to talk about another one? Magic Spoon is actually the same story as Ibi, where Magic Spoon was commercialized by the City Ops team. And when it came time for Series A, we were among the small handful of new investors allowed in because we had a prior relationship with the team. The rest was all just taken out by insiders. There's a new entrepreneur and he's starting now in the food and beverage space. What are some of the do's and don'ts that they should keep in mind based on your experience? You can start a company doing anything and succeed. If you were going to start a food company tomorrow, I would advise you just start something shelf-stable, D2C friendly, relatively light, expensive, addictive, which all make it very D2C friendly. I would stay out of all cold chain. I would not do anything refrigerated or frozen. And that's just because at early stage, it's just so hard to get noticed cold and you have to do basically very small run sizes very frequently, which puts you at an operational disadvantage. So shelf stable, D to C first, high margin would be where I would start looking. Yeah, right now for me, that has been direct to consumer beverages that don't ship the water. Is the subset of the world that I've been doing a lot in. So our last maybe five or six deals are in this space. Mudwater is one of them. Kenko is a powdered shelf stable smoothie company. Tea Drops is a whole leaf tea compressed into a little teardrop looking thing like a bath bomb for tea. Copper Cow Coffee is an at-home pour-over. These all follow that same light, shelf-stable, addicting, expensive beverages that don't ship the water. How about the approach to the market? Because Mud Water, for example, has chosen to just go direct as opposed to try to go and get shelf space somewhere. They've done that 
super well. Sure. Mudwater is a mushroom chai, for lack of a better way to describe it. It's a mushroom coffee alternative that has about one-seventh the caffeine of coffee, but is a lovely little pick-me-up that doesn't give you all the jitters and awful stuff that coffee gives you. So we just invested in the Series A of Mudwater, and I love it. I drink it every afternoon. We are happy to also be investors of Mudwater as well. How much of the innovation is driven by direct-to-consumer approaches versus traditional retail approaches to market? Yeah. So I would say retail, again, is tough right now still because of COVID. And with limited sampling opportunities and slower resets and this eyes on the list and get out mentality of the consumer, it's just hard to get noticed there. D2C, you can tell your story really, really effectively. That said, D2C is very expensive right now, but what D2C gives you, I guess the answer is you should always strive to be omni-channel, I think. Maybe not always, but most of the time. And what I've seen as a very effective strategy to do that is in starting D2C, because if you start retail, you don't have much of a story to tell your retailers. If you start D2C, you can go to retailers and show them data about how you're performing in the zip codes that they're in. You have a lot more power in those conversations, and that can result in saving you things like slotting fees and just make the whole thing a less expensive, lower friction rollout where you're not constantly trying to push a boulder uphill. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know you touched on it briefly, but would love to know more about your background and how you got into VC. Sure, a roundabout way. So my background is as entrepreneur and software engineer. So I started two companies. The first went so well, it accidentally turned me into a software engineer, we'll say. Nice. Uh, and then I got a master's, <laughs> yes. Learned a lot. Got a master's in computer science and then spent four years at Bloomberg as a full stack engineer, basically building their internal CRM in the form of Bloomberg terminal applications. And then went and got an MBA from Morton and started my second company there, which was a corporate catering marketplace like I mentioned earlier. So it was connecting independent chefs and caterers working out of what was at the time not yet known as ghost kitchens and doing their own menus, their own recipes, their own pricing. And we were a subscription corporate lunch, basically. So connecting those independent chefs and caterers with the Friday lunch program at the office, bringing different food every week from a different chef, always the same price, dietary restrictions, portion sizes, number of people, down to the delivery driver who already knew where to put it and how to lay out all the paper goods. <laughs> so I did that for about two and a half years out of school. That's a model that really does work. Sold it to a bigger, sexier version of ourselves called Hungry Marketplace that I think is going to have a really solid exit in the next couple of years, hopefully be a nice big public catering company. Is it Hungry based in Arlington? Yes. Yes, they are based in Arlington. Uh, <laughs> and yes, the, the, so acquiring us was their move from one city, which is greater DC to two. They added our Philly presence. Right. Awesome. So I then spent a couple of weeks transitioning my chefs, my ops people, my customers, everything over to their systems, and then joined my dad, who spent 35 years primarily at Credit Suisse and also Clayton Dublier and Rice and retired about seven or eight years ago. It's a focus half on retirement and half on making private direct investments for fun. I would say the retirement is not going well at all, <laughs> but the private direct investments are so far so good. And I joined him basically looking at tech and food and fell in love with food pretty quick. Nothing wrong with tech. So being a food bev guy, I have to ask the question, if you were to only choose one option... You have to choose a favorite food and favorite beverage. And I know how difficult that probably is, but our listeners are dying to know, including myself. <laughs> My favorite beverage right now, 
and I apologize to the rest of my portfolio, but it has to be Circle. Circle is, and I know that everyone's only listening, but it's a pod that screws into the top of a water bottle. In the water bottle, you just fill it with normal water and you drink it through the pod for flavor. And they have a whole oh, bunch cool. of different, yeah, they have different categories of flavors. So the ones that I drink are like hint, they're unflavored fruit flavors, yeah. but they have things that are closer to that body armor or vitamin water flavor or a frappuccino or Snapple. They have things that are analogous to everything and it's delicious. That's awesome. How long does it last? So there's a little circle on top, which is how they get the name that controls how much flavor you actually get out of every sip. And depending on how you set that, it's, I think, three to 10 bottles for about three bucks. I will buy that because as someone who doesn't drink any water, <laughs> maybe that will motivate me. And my, my, that, that's actually smart. It's, oh, yeah. it's awesome. They're the biggest position in our fund, I believe, and they are an unbelievable growth D2C that's really incredible. And they're going into retail at some point. All right. Favorite food. Oh, I'm looking at my bit of goodies. It doesn't have to be a portfolio company. Uh, of course it does. <laughs> um, favorite food. It's got to just be a breakfast sandwich. Whatever the local delicious greasy breakfast sandwich is, is my favorite food. Go. Yeah. Can't get better than that. No. So I have to follow up to that question with what is the strangest food or beverage you've ever been pitched on? Oh, that's a good one. There's a shelf-stable meat analog made out of cricket protein. Cricket had a bit of a moment, and actually the founders of Magic Spoon, their last company was a cricket bar company, and cricket protein is a real thing. And I am obsessed personally with making things shelf-stable that otherwise were not. A shelf-stable smoothie or something like that, how can you create that? And these guys created a red meat hamburger analog out of cricket powder. What's the texture of that? I mean, I'm trying to imagine. It's a powder that you reconstitute with water and then form into a patty and grill it. Wow. <laughs> that, that sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> sure. It was really good. Okay. Well, I'm going to take guess, your word on that. <laughs> I guess you, you, don't, you don't really feel that. I mean, I don't know what crickets would taste like, right? But you probably don't feel that, right? It's like chicken. Chicken, it's like exactly. Chicken. Okay. <laughs> Got to try that. So Steve, talk to us a little bit about the cell-based meat alternatives that are kind of the rage. I mean, you had Memphis Meats, which changed its name, right? Yes, now Upside Foods. Yes, okay. And there's others too. So what do you think is the future of the meat protein? Is it going to be lab-grown? Yeah, so I've talked to a lot of this industry and people think about it in very different ways. So there are some people who are only working on cultivating fat and then they want to combine it with plant protein. Right. There are some that are focused on only like a minced meat to go inside a dumpling or something like that. There are some that are focused on whole muscle and are going to deliver that high value, 100% cell target. There are some that want to be partners with big CPGs. There are some that want to be consumer brands. And it's going to be really interesting to see how it all shakes out. I think in the short term, the first ones to market, or at least the ones that are saying they're going to be first to market, are coming out with a blended product. That'll be, because it's still very, very expensive to cultivate all these cells. It's still basically being done on pharmaceutical-grade equipment and needs to be scaled up, but there's years before it's at real scale. And I should have said for the audience that when we say cell-based meat, it's basically meat that is grown in the lab in the equivalent of a Petri dish at scale, right? Right. It, it is real animal cells that are multiplied and then 
formed into some kind of final form, whether that's a whole tuna filet or a plant-based burger with a little bit of beef cells rolled into it. So those going for speed to market are going to be those blended products, and they might be 90 plus percent plant-based with a little bit of cell, really almost as a flavor additive, not really for the structure of the product. But I think it's not going to be one or the other. I think that the world is going to turn into a crazy hybrid of all these things. And that is things that are created using precision fermentation and cell-based technologies and plant-based technologies. I've started registering personally domains for meat that does not exist in nature. So Wagyu beef, the most marbled Wagyu beef you can buy is A5 Wagyu. I bought A6Wagyu.com because why can't we make cells such that the Wagyu is even more marbleized. So that's not in the next five years, right? We got to focus on scaling this whole thing up first. And I think that the way you have to start is with things that people understand, like this is a beef burger, but there's no reason why 10, 15 years from now, we shouldn't be eating bacon that's made from pork protein and duck fat that served in a single strip. Crazy world coming. Makes sense. So I've registered a6wagyu.com and duckbuildpig.com for when I can sell those two products. Smart <laughs> strategy. I like it. That's right. Anticipating the future. Great. So at this point, we're going to switch to our four standard questions that we ask at the end of every podcast in an attempt to get to know you better. So the first question is our NVCA question. The National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneur ecosystem. If there's one thing you would change about the venture capital industry or one policy you would advocate for, what would it be? I think controversially that the whole industry should maybe switch to common stock. I've read some really interesting stuff on this that preferred stock is great and it offers us downside protection, but the real returns that people make in venture, they don't make on retaining the downside, they make it on the upside. And that investing in common stock really puts us in a position of full alignment with founders and potentially has a valuation impact as well. The problem is that you sort of need everyone to do it because I'm not going to be the guy who's common and the next guy comes in preferred on top of me, then we got a problem. Got it. Interesting. That's the first one. Why this not? Kind of... <laughs> Second question is, if you were not a VC investor and money was not a concern, what career would you have? When I was in sixth grade, I did a career report on Chef. And I liked really all the things about Chef. I like experimenting in the kitchen. I like making interesting creations. I like feeding them to people. My problem with being a chef is the money and the hours, which is why when I started a corporate catering platform, it was a corporate catering platform, right? If it was a regular catering platform, I'd have angry brides on Saturday night, but instead I got office lunch on a Tuesday and that helped me a lot with work-life balance. But I still just love to cook and would love to, if given all the time in the world, that's what I'd be doing. What's your favorite thing to cook? What's my favorite thing to cook? Barbecue. Yes, I'm totally down for that. Things that take a really long time. Yeah. Time is my favorite ingredient. I think you can really get interesting with it in a way that takes persistence. Got it. Question number three, who is someone you look up to and why? I'm going to have to give this one to my dad. He brought me into this industry. He taught me what I know about investing and what I know about business. And I don't know where the hell I'd be without him dragging me along, at least into this world, but for sure many worlds before that too. I'm sure he will appreciate hearing that and knowing I'm your dad. I'm sure he will. Yeah, knowing your dad, we can second that he's a great guy. <laughs> Actually, my first day working with him was the day that I went to your dinner in New York a couple of years ago. Is that right? Oh. Um, so yeah, that was day one for me, and it's all uphill from there. That's great. 
And question number four is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? It was that I don't scale. It was when I was trying to start a company and I was the founder who was out there hustling and doing everything and not taking a salary and not willing to even hire people because it would burn some of the money. And then I went to go try to raise money for that. And there was nothing to raise on. I had no sense of what my use of funds was going to be because my only use of funds prior was reserve. And no investor is going to get, but if I'm out there as the only sales rep and here's what I can do, every investor should discount that that's what a sales rep should do because I'm the founder. I'm the one who's out there. No one should be as passionate about this thing as I am. You got to learn to take a step back early and figure out what it actually takes to scale your idea. And that's not you running around doing everything. Got it. That's good advice for a lot of entrepreneurs. So thank you. Well, thanks so much for taking the time today, Stephen. We really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to doing this again sometime soon. Of course. Sounds good. I'll be there. Thanks a lot, guys. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at Proof.VC. 